Hey, everyone. We're back with another episode of The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice. I'm your host, Gabrielle Dresner, and with me again today is Hussein. Hey, Gabby. Last month, I said we'd be talking about the Kalamazoo anti-racist model, but we're actually going to push that episode back a while. So a change of plans today, we're going to be talking about Raise the Age legislation, which raised the age of juvenile court jurisdiction from 17 to 18 years of age, keeping youth out of adult court. Michigan passed this legislation on October 31st in 2019, and it went into effect two years later on October 1st, 2021. Yeah, and to share some context on that, Michigan was one of the last states to actually make this change, one of the last four. Wisconsin, Georgia, and Texas are the only ones that are remaining. And we've used this term once, at least, uh, the age of jurisdiction. That's the oldest age at which a juvenile court has original jurisdiction over a law-violating youth, meaning any youth under that age will automatically be uh, in juvenile court. So as you mentioned, Gabby, RTA, raised the age, changed that age from 17 to 18. So anyone under the age of 18 would end up in juvenile court. And that has a couple of implications. One of those implications, uh, and this is the really important one, uh, is that in order for a prosecutor to charge a youth as an adult, they would actually have to affirmatively make that decision and then take steps to put it into effect in court. Uh, and so there's that added level of difficulty. There's some steps there that have to be taken. The other implication is that this corrects uh, an inconsistency in Michigan state laws. For a long time, Michigan state laws have made a clear distinction uh, between youth and adulthood uh, at the age of 18. You have to be 18 to enter into a contract, to make a will, to purchase a home, to serve on a jury, to give consent for medical care. So to charge, <laughs> to charge 17-year-olds as as, uh, as adults was pretty inconsistent. This uh, this change corrected that inconsistency. Yeah, and there's even more inconsistency beyond 18 years of age. That's when there are most markers of adulthood. But also think about like kids can't buy alcohol until they're 21. So charging a 17-year-old as an adult really just does not make a lot of sense. So like you said, Hussein, prior to raise the age passing, uh, Michigan's age of jurisdiction was 17 years old. So 17-year-olds who got in legal trouble automatically went to adult court. In 2016, more than 80% of arrests for Michigan's 17-year-olds were for nonviolent offenses, and more than half of those were considered misdemeanors. So it's not necessarily that these kids are going out and committing like the worst of the worst crimes. And actually, based on arrest categorization, 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds look very similar on paper, meaning that they're getting arrested for very similar things, but those 17-year-olds were going straight to adult court instead of juvenile court like the 16-year-olds. In fact, in both of these age groups, 16 and 17-year-olds, kids were most often arrested for petty crimes like shoplifting, fighting, and possession of drugs and alcohol. So um, most of the kids who enter the system at age 17 don't have a prior record. And so, again, it's things like, you know, stupid pranks that your, your friends might dare you to do. We've talked about it time and time again on this podcast that kids don't have that sort of brain development to look ahead and say, this might not actually be a great idea. So um, just kids getting arrested for shoplifting, fighting, drugs and alcohol, fairly common teen behavior. Over the course of 10 years, so from 2003 to 2013, more than 20,000 Michigan youth were on adult probation, detained in jail or imprisoned. So again, the majority of these cases were also nonviolent. 
And some of the kids over these 10 years, some of those 20,000 youth were as young as 10 years old. So we're talking about really young kids here. It's not, again, it's not always these kids that you think like are the worst of the worst. It's a 10 year old who got in a school fight or, you know, a 16 year old who got caught drinking at a high school party. We also know that this is disproportionately impacting youth of color. So 53% of 17-year-olds who enter Michigan's adult justice system, so 53% of 17-year-olds who go immediately to adult court are youth of color, even though youth of color only make up 23% of the youth population statewide. And additionally, this impacts, uh, disproportionately impacts LGBTQ plus youth. And though we're lacking data in that, it's hard to specifically say how strong that disproportionate impact is. We do know that LGBTQ youth are also disproportionately represented in the justice system. Now would be a good time, I think, to talk about uh, the consequences of housing 17-year-olds in the adult criminal legal system. Uh, and, you know, the biggest consequence is that it threatens their safety. They're twice as likely to be beaten by staff, five times as likely to be sexually assaulted, 36 times more likely to die by suicide than those in the juvenile justice system. There's a, there's a clear danger to youth who are uh, in the adult legal system, in particular in adult prison facilities. Uh, on sexual assault... It was so prevalent before that the U.S. Department of Justice established the Youthful Inmate Standard uh, within the Prison Rape Elimination Act, uh, which required that all youth be meaningfully separated by sight and sound when they're in adult uh, jails and prisons. And adult uh, jails and prisons wouldn't be allowed to use solitary confinement to achieve that separation, because that also has serious effects on uh, youth mental health. On suicide, I mentioned a second ago that youth in the adult system are 36 times more likely to die by suicide than those in the juvenile justice system. And this is because that youth who are at risk of suicide end up being tied down in uh, on a metal bed or they end up in a, on a comp- concrete slab in an observation cell. They don't have the conditions that they need to be able to deal with their problems. The, the facilities that they're in don't have the resources to help them work through those problems and thus they're at greater risk. Based on interviews with family members and advocates, we know that youth who are in adult facilities are more likely to join gangs because they need protection. They might even turn to prostitution within prison to pay for their safety. So this is a very, very dire situation. One thing that I really want to highlight that you said in the explanation of why incarcerating kids with adults is so dangerous is because adult prison is not designed for rehabilitation. The system is not designed for rehabilitation like the youth justice system is. So I just want to bring that to light and really highlight the fact that the youth justice system is designed for rehabilitation and treatment where the adult system could be argued as designed for punishment. Gabby, I think that's a great point. And it's actually bringing me back to our conversation a few episodes ago about juvenile life without parole, where we talked about how youth deserve the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves. They deserve the opportunity to try again, and do better this time around. And this uh, conversation is reminding me of the fact that all of these ages are arbitrary. Why is it that a 16-year-old should have access to rehabilitative services and a 17-year-old shouldn't? Or after RTA, a 17-year-old should and an 18-year-old shouldn't? These are all arbitrary ages. In fact, the science that we've already discussed shows that youth are still developing until they're in their mid-20s. 
right? Until their mid-20s. We've chosen this arbitrary age throughout our history of 18 years old or 17 years old, and we've decided that anyone above that age doesn't deserve the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves. In any case, this is an incremental step in the right direction. It sets the right precedent, uh, and uh, we're going to keep moving forward, albeit incrementally. So moving on from how uh, youth incarceration in the adult system affects their safety, it threatens their safety, youth incarceration in the adult system also increases crime. And uh, we know this from a different, uh, from a variety of different factors. Uh, we know this also from Judge Faye Harrison, who's the chief judge pro tem in the uh, uh, 10th Judicial Circuit uh, in Saginaw. She says, jails are no good for kids. They are not going to get the same degree of education, mental health services, anything. It's designed to be an adult facility, not a long-term residential program for kids. And I think she hits the nail on the head here. The, the jails are not going to accomplish the same goals for youth as they might for adults. Youth leaving the adult system are 34% more likely to reoffend. They're more likely to reoffend sooner and escalate to more violent crimes. 54% of youth on probation, age 16 or younger, uh, they escalated to prison as a result of a probation violation, either due to you know a technical violation or because of a new sentence. So being involved in the adult system for youth is actually counterproductive. So I just want to clarify quick, I think we've mentioned this before, but a technical violation is not committing a new offense. That's something that's considered a violation of the terms of probation. So for kids, it's frequently things like not going to school or staying out past curfew. But a technical violation does not mean that that person went and committed another offense. Thanks for clarifying that, Gabby. And I also want to mention that youth and adult prisons are more likely to commit uh, violent infractions, including threatening a correctional officer, possessing a weapon, rioting, fighting, committing an assault with a weapon, committing an assault without a weapon. There's a lot of factors here that we can consider, but I think the main one that we should consider is the fact that youth are going to make mistakes in high-pressure situations, right? There's an extreme stress from being in confinement. There's high rates of mental illness that we've already talked about, but most of all, youth are more impulsive than adults. Youth, when faced with a decision that they have to make quickly, when the consequences they perceive you know, to their safety are very dire, they will make bad decisions. They'll commit violence, they'll do things, and that doesn't speak to their character, it speaks to the situation that they're in. They are in an environment where they do not belong. We also saw this when we talked about how COVID impacted kids in the justice system. I want to say it was episode two or three that we talked about the COVID reports that we did. And there we also saw that when kids in residential facilities were essentially placed on lockdown to, due to the pandemic, that they started acting out and their behavior was considered less desirable, landing them in secure facilities too. So we've seen this time and time again, that kids who are placed in stressful, uh, high stress situations where they feel pressure, they're going to start acting out because again, they don't have the capacity to deal with those sort of big emotions in the way that adults do. Exactly. And so aside from those consequences of incarcerating youth with adults, uh, we can also talk about some of the financial and economic consequences. In 2014, incarceration cost about $34,000 per year per person, with an average sentence being 4.3 years, that's almost $150,000 per person. But aside from that, aside from the financial consequences of incarcerating more people, there's also economic consequences that affect all of us. People with records have a more difficult time finding employment, and they lose about 40% of their lifetime revenue. And that has consequences not only for their life, of course, but it means that the state is collecting less 
in in taxes it means that there are less people filling jobs that we need there are consequences to the broader society when we incarcerate even more people we can also sort of talk about why that is so i want to make clear that this isn't people just saying, oh, I don't want to work, but having an adult record is a barrier to employment. So when we're talking about a 40% loss of lifetime revenue resulting in a loss of state tax revenue also, it's because these people have a difficult time finding employment because of their record. So I just want to make that clear that having a criminal conviction on your record is a barrier to traditional employment. Yeah. And an, another aspect to that is that the uh, age of youth is really the time where most people are best able to learn and to develop uh, new skills and uh, go to school and take time away from any possible obligations that they might have uh, to really drill down on getting an education. But all federal student loans are prohibited for certain convictions. You might not be able to join the military. Uh, there's a lot of other doors that close for a kid that has an adult conviction. The other aspect of this is the permanent nature of charging a youth as an adult. Even if that charge didn't eventually result in a conviction, anytime that youth is back in court and charged with a felony, they'll always be considered an adult. Once an adult, always an adult. Yeah, and those adult convictions, again, carry very heavy consequences. It's hard to find employment, housing, education, like you said, it's you can't join the military. Licensure for occupations can be off limits. Um, you know, we've heard uh, people who wanted to get their barber's license, they're not able to do so because they have a criminal conviction. So um, there are sort of endless reasons to keep kids out of adult prisons. And we've talked about the movement to treat kids as kids in our previous episodes, especially on juvenile life without parole, where we covered the cases that dictated what sentencing is appropriate for kids. And in those cases, the Supreme Court of the United States had a common element. Youth under 18 are fundamentally different from adults. And that's something that we have hammered home in the last couple of episodes and in this episode. And you will continue to hear us say in future episodes, kids who get in trouble are just kids. So in Michigan, in 2019, Governor Whitmer signed the Raise the Age legislation package, um, allowing 17-year-olds the opportunity to be treated like the youth that they are. Raise the Age put 17-year-olds into juvenile court automatically, diverting them away from the adult court. Now these kids will be able to get more age-appropriate services, be housed appropriately with kids more similar to their age and their development, and have a better opportunity for success post-adjudication. Though the bill passed in 2019, it didn't go into effect until 2021, and this was done intentionally as a way to give courts plenty of time to prepare to deal with the influx of older, adult, uh, older youth. So juvenile courts already worked with 17-year-olds. Kids were adjudicated at 16 and had a birthday. So this wasn't a new or an unknown population. The system was already designed to serve 17-year-olds in more ways than one, right? So they're already serving these 17-year-olds because 16-year-olds are turning 17 while they're in the system. But also, like we said earlier, 16 and 17-year-olds are not very different when you look at them on paper. For sure. And this law really had practical implications for the juvenile justice system. And this is why it was important for courts to have plenty of time to prepare for its eventual implementation. Jackson County Youth Center, since October 1st, over 20% of their admissions have been 17-year-olds. 
That's a huge amount. Uh, but in Ingham County, we've seen that Deputy Circuit Court Administrator Scott Leroy said that the changes didn't make a huge impact for them because they actually had time to build out their system, uh, develop new programming, all the other things. And in terms of how it affected the juvenile justice system in general, once Raise the Age went into effect, half of the individuals brought to the juvenile court were 17 at the time of their offenses. So this is having real implications for youth who are becoming justice involved. They're not ending up in the adult system. They're, giving, they're being given the rehabilitative services that they deserve. Yeah, and I'd also like to mention um, that in recent budget years, Raise the Age actually was allocated money to prepare for the implementation and for these kids to come in. So um, oftentimes when we hear about laws getting passed, there's sort of a question of, okay, well, now what? How do we implement this? Um, so there was actually a dollar amount allocated to the implementation of Raise the Age. I want to say it was last year's budget. Um, so that's great news for 17-year-olds, great news for us and our advocacy, and we are thrilled that that happened. So that sort of concludes our summary of Raise the Age and how we got to where we are and how we're treating 17-year-olds now. And again, I just want to highlight that Michigan was one of the last four states to do this, so we're really proud to have advocated for this change in Michigan. It's something that was really desperately needed. So next month, we are going to talk about creating a minimum age of jurisdiction. This episode talked about an upper age of jurisdiction. Um, so a minimum age of jurisdiction is sort of the same thing, but on the other side. So the lowest age a kid can be court involved. Since, 1960, since 1996, when the state eliminated a lower age threshold, 75 children under the age of 14 have been convicted as adults. So 75 might not sound like a huge number, um, a huge amount of kids since 1996, but um, when you think about the fact that 14-year-olds or under 14-year-olds are freshmen in high school and middle schoolers, um, you start to sort of get a picture of these literal children being convicted. And I want to touch on this briefly in this episode, but in the next episode, we'll talk even more in depth about this. But um, just quickly here, even with quality legal representation, research shows that young people, especially children under 15, are significantly less likely than adults to understand court proceedings or effectively assist their attorney in their own defense. And this is something we mentioned in a previous episode as well about meaningfully being able to assist in your own defense. And um, we'll talk a lot about that in the next episode. But until then, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, feel free to write in if you have any feedback or any questions. We're always happy to hear from you. Yeah, we would love to hear from you guys. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And follow us wherever you find your podcasts. If you'd like to follow us on social media, our handle is at MIYouthJustice on almost every platform. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of those good places. And we'll see you next time at the table.